Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Welcome to the Psychology Podcast, where we give you insights into the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. I'm Dr. Scott Barry-Kaufman, and in each episode, I have a conversation with a guest who will stimulate your mind and give you a greater understanding of yourself, others, and the world we live in. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the podcast. Today, we have Dr. Jordan Peterson on the podcast. Dr. Peterson is a psychologist who has taught mythology to lawyers, doctors, and business people, consulted for the UN Secretary General, helped his clinical clients manage depression, obsessive-compulsive disorder, anxiety, and schizophrenia, served as an advisor to senior partners of major Canadian law firms, and lectured extensively in North America and Europe. With his students and colleagues at Harvard and the University of Toronto, Dr. Peterson has published over 100 scientific papers. Dr. Peterson is also author of two books, Maps of Meaning, The Architecture of Belief, and 12 Rules for Life, An Antidote to Chaos, which is a number one bestseller. Jordan, great to chat with you today. Hey, thanks for the invitation. Yeah, as uh, we were saying just back channel before we started, it's nice to finally like see you and talk to you. We've been in touch for a while and published a paper on creativity. And I should give you even further context, which I never gave you when we were actually collaborating, which is as I was working on my dissertation, I drew a lot on your work. I drew a lot on your work on creativity and personality. And I thought there'd be no better place than to start with our discussion than some of that seminal work you have done on creativity. And one concept that really fascinated me in grad school was the idea of latent inhibition. And you had done some work on that and had found this really interesting link between latent inhibition and the personality trait openness to experience. And then you did this, you know, you did that with Shelley Carson, and then you did this work linking it to creative achievement. I thought you could talk a little about what is latent inhibition and, and how is it related to creativity? Well, a lot of what we learn, you know, you might think that you learn what things mean. And there is some truth in that, but it's more accurate in many ways to reverse that, like reversing so many things in psychology is useful. It's not that useful to try to figure out why people get addicted, for example. It's very useful to figure out why some people, why most people aren't addicted all the time. It's not that 
difficult to figure out why people are afraid. What's hard is to understand why people aren't afraid all the time. So a lot of things in psychology, we get backwards and we tend to think that we learn the meaning of things, but that's not exactly true. It's more reasonable to point out that we learn that things are irrelevant. They start out meaningful and we learn that they're irrelevant. And the reason for that is that when you first encounter something, you don't want to assume that it's irrelevant, mostly because it might be dangerous, partly also because it might be useful. But most of the things that we encounter prove to neither be dangerous nor useful, and so that we can safely put them aside with all the other things that we don't attend to. And we don't attend to almost everything. So learned irrelevance is unbelievably important. And latent inhibition is, in some sense, a way of measuring how fast someone can make something irrelevant through learning. So imagine that something surprises you and you have a big response to it, but nothing comes of it. And then the next time it pops up, it doesn't surprise you at all. That's basically learning through latent inhibition. Now, one of the things we started to contemplate, this was back 20 years ago with my student Shelley Carson and Daniel Higgins, was the role that artists play in revivifying perception. So if you look at a Van Gogh painting of irises, for example, or sunflowers, very famous paintings, as if the artist makes you recall how those remarkable phenomena manifest themselves so that you can see them as if you're seeing them again for the first time. And what we thought was that perhaps what the artist was doing was stripping away your latent inhibition so that you could see things the way you saw them the first time in all their splendor and glory before you pack them away conceptually as irrelevant. And so we tested that with creative people and found that creative people did have lower latent inhibition and so did people high in the personality trait openness. I love that. I should say that Hans Isaac got there first. Curse his soul. <laughs> he got everywhere. He, I, he did. He in got the field of, of personality. I mean, William James, William James got everywhere first, but he, in terms of personality, Isaac got there first, yeah. Well, William, what's funny, I guess in some sense, William James even got there before Isaac because uh, he played around with nitrous oxide, yeah, right? He so sure he, was one of, he was one of the first experimenters with hallucinogens fundamentally. Oh, yeah. And he wrote hippie poetry on nitrous oxide, noting what was likely something like the stripping away of latent inhibition as a consequence of, of hallucinogenic use. So, yeah, it's an, and all the eldest Huxley, of course, too, believed that the hallucinogens in particular cleaned the doors of perception using William Blake's terminology so that it was possible to see everything as if you were seeing it for the first time. There's some forms of brain damage that can produce that, too. So anyways, yeah, yeah. So we tested it and well, it turned out that latent inhibition does look like low latent inhibition looks like it's uh, importantly related to creativity and to trade openness. You know, Abraham Maslow, he talked about newness of appreciation as one of the main characteristics of self-actualizing people. And I think that that can be linked to latent inhibition. I, I'm sure you would agree. It was, you just described, you know, kind of mm -hmm. everything is, you kind of, there's a wonder to the world. There's a wonder. Everything is kind of fresh again. Yeah, the cost is likely something like cognitive overload. Like, one of the things that Shelley Carson and I were trying to investigate when we studied the high openness people at Harvard, the high openness students, which was a very good place to study that, was that it looks like in order to handle the excess sensory input of low latent inhibition, it's really useful to have very high, well, probably high IQ, but and high working memory. Those two concepts are quite overlapping, so it's difficult to distinguish between them. But it seems probable that if you're prone to be overwhelmed by sensory information, that you need 
the cognitive capacity to handle that. And also perhaps the, and we don't know about this yet, but the personality ability to sort through that critically so you don't end up overwhelmed. So the shared vulnerability model of your student, Shelley Carson, is very relevant here, right? And I don't know, do you know about, I haven't kept up so well in the last couple of years with the recent work detailing out the shared vulnerability model. Shelley and I wrote a joint series of articles for the Canadian Journal of Psychiatry on shared vulnerability between uh, openness and predisposition to schizophrenia. Mm. I mean, that's always lurking in the background when you talk about creativity, right? The shared, oh, yeah. the overlap with manic depressive disorder and potentially with schizophrenia. I don't think that's ever been sorted out properly. I've written a couple of papers in the past five years on the genetics of psychosis and its overlap with creativity, which is a fascinating, you know, there's, there's a lot of recent research on the genetics of this stuff and showing this overlap. And it seems to be particularly associated with this openness, that things relate to openness and things relate to the default networks. I think the discovery of the default mode network in recent years has really allowed us to understand this. So my colleagues and I published a paper recently showing a direct link between the efficiency of the default mode network and the personality trait openness to experience. So we can oh, now, lay that we, out for me a little bit. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, so, sure. Yeah. So we can now link, we can link, you know, the brain structure and network dynamics. Okay, so we used a network approach to look at the connectivity of the default network and actually analyze individual differences in the connectivity between people within the default network. So as a measure of your efficiency within that particular brain network as a start, and that was correlated with the open to experience domain. But then, so, we, so, what, so does that mean in, increased connectivity within the default network was yeah. associated with high? Okay, and what did the increased connectivity signify? What do you think the functional significance of that is? Well, I think efficiency in the sense of quicker information flow between the three major sub hubs of the default mode network is the three sub networks the default mode network involve. The meaning making, meaning making seems to be a huge part of this network, you know, the construction of self. People who get kind of this network knocked out, they don't even know who they are anymore. And I find that fascinating. And then there's the mental simulation part, being able to imagine the future. That's why I've called this network like the imagination network to be mm-hmm. sexier about it, because I think default mode is like, it connotes that yeah. it's kind of a passive network when it's actually a really active network. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's not like a... Yeah, it does sound like a, a default yeah. does make it sound like it's passive. Hey, did you see the the work done with psilocybin showing radical increase in brain connectivity under the influence of psilocybin? Yeah, yeah, I love that. And I think that like we're on the verge here of something really integrated, Jordan, because like, you know, you wrote that paper with Rachel Graziopoine and Colin. You mapped out the whole terrain. I love that because we've been building off that. I could send you a paper where we had a, a synthesis of the whole literature. We have this hierarchical model of the cognitive exploration domain where you have like cognitive exploration at the top, and then you have openness and then intellect, which is the paper we, you know, we showed openness intellect differentially predict creative achievement. But then under that, you find all sorts of facets which contradict, which are negatively correlated with each other, even though one step higher in the hierarchy, they're positively correlated, right? Mm-hmm. It seems to be going on there, right? Is that there are these breed of humans that can take these contradictory modes of thought within themselves. You know, most people in the general population have all these sorts of dichotomies. You're either selfish or you're not selfish. You're either compassionate or you're not. You're either this. But it seems like creative people are amazing at able to like harness these contra- seemingly contradictory modes of being. And Well, you know, I suspect it's probably a, ne- a process of neoteny. Mm. You know, I, I think that the creative people stay immature. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, there's a proclivity in evolution for creatures to evolve towards their neotenous form. Yeah. So, and it looks to me like 
the creative types are they're sustaining that plasticity they have as really early children. Maybe they're permanently locked to some degree into that pretend play mode that's so characteristic of children between the age of four and say, well, maybe 11, something like that. Well, it's good to have both those things operating, you know, because often you talk to people, this is really characteristic of people who are sort of on the new age end of the spectrum. Carl Jung said something interesting once about how people think. He said, for most people, a thought appears in their mind and they just accept it uncritically. Mm. So that's the thinking. And But that's not really thinking. That would be more associated perhaps with what you described as activation of this imagination network. But Mm. it's a lot more difficult to have the thoughts appear and then to take them apart. And I think it would be really worthwhile to analyze the role of, well, we know IQ is important in that, obviously, because IQ just enables you to handle a larger number of variables. Hey, did you find out if that increased connectivity that you were describing was positively associated with IQ? Okay, I'm so glad you asked that because I was going to tell you about the follow-up paper. And by the okay. way, this I want to be totally fair to my collaborators. This was led by Roger Beatty. I ran something with Martin Seligman in the last four years at Penn called the Imagination Institute. And as part of that, we put out a, a huge grant for people to do research. So we funded some of this research. And I was a co-author in some of these papers, but Roger Beatty did a lot of this work. Now, with that out of the way, the follow-up paper showed that increased connectivity between the executive network and the default mode network was essential for creative thinking. So openness to experience is not equivalent to creative thinking, right? So the the kind of one step is to show there's a link between the imagination network and openness. But really, real novel and meaningful creative cognition seemed to require that both the default mode network and executive network, executive attention, and the salience network, actually, the salience network is an interesting network we could talk about. The interaction between those three networks were essential for the cognition to be novel and meaningful. But that's fascinating because most people in the general population, it's anti-correlated. Some of these networks are anti-correlated. Like most people, for most people, it's like as soon as you focus on the outside world, you shut up your imagination or when you go Uh imagine. Yeah. But creative people who are really good creative, they're like good at keeping on call. Oh, that's really interesting. Oh, that really is interesting because Shelley and I, back when we were doing the creative achievement questionnaire research, we kind of thought that one of the things that might characterize creative people is that ability to switch back and forth between openness and critical thinking was under voluntary control. It's interesting to think to the extent to which it's under voluntary control. I wonder how we could study that. Like, we just know that this is what the brain networks are doing. Yeah. They're toggling back and forth. But could we ask? Could we do reports? It's almost with a sense that, like, creative people, as soon as you ask them to think about it, if they're in the flow state, then suddenly it evaporates. You know, it's like... Yeah, well, it's, yeah. it's, it's hard to tell how much... Okay, so, well, and of course, defining voluntary scientifically is not a straightforward thing. But yeah. it'd be interesting to see if people do think about that as voluntary. And if it's a skill as well, if it's something that people can learn to develop. because you can, to some degree, teach people critical thinking. Like you can teach them to look at an idea and break it apart and analyze it. So all that remains to be determined, I guess. So let's move on to some other topics. You did this really interesting study that I, you know I wrote about in Scientific American with Christine Brophy yeah. on the personality of political correctness. Yeah, we found we were looking, well, two things we wanted to establish. The first is we wanted to establish if there was a coherent group of political beliefs and attitudes, let's say, that you could bring under the rubric of political correctness. You know, because of course, you know that just because a concept pops up in the popular literature, let's say, or often even in the psychological literature, that doesn't mean that the concept has any basis in fact. What we did was we did a standard psychometric investigation. And so we oversampled the politically correct attitude domain. We had a bunch of people come up with questions 
that seemed to be indicative of what people were describing when they discussed political correctness in the media. And we put together, I think, 400 questions and had a very large number of people answer all of them and then subjected the question, the answers to a factor analysis and came up mm -hmm. with a coherent two-factor solution to political correctness, one that looked like it was associated with what you might describe as the radical left, the interventionist radical left, and the other that was more associated with, I would say, just left-leaning liberalism, and then looked at the personality predictors and personality and cognitive predictors of, of both of those. They weren't that highly correlated, interestingly enough. Yeah. I mean, that was partly because we used a an extraction technique that decreased the correlations, but you could you could extract out two quite separate sets of political belief. And yeah, trait agreeableness was a good predictor, which was quite interesting because it hadn't shown up that power, trait agreeableness and being female as well, which was also quite interesting. I mean, we're in a situation now eh, where it isn't obvious how men and women are going to cooperate politically because it does look like our differences our intrinsic differences in personality and interest might divide us quite radically politically. And so God only knows how that's going to play out on the political realm. Yeah, it's really interesting to think about. And I, I've been trying to like wrap my head around the real practical implications when I look at the data and then try to like, and I'd like to hear your thoughts on what you think the percentage of this could really be impactful. So like I looked at a figure the other day of the overlap of the distribution and compassion and there is in the general population, we're not talking about like it's a totally different planet, you know, 70% overlap in the BFAS that you yeah. co-created with Colin. But And so in that paper where Colin looked at the gender differences in the different Big Ten, Compassion did have the largest gender difference. But if you look at the actual graph, you know, you see like 70%. And of course, that doesn't say anything about at the extremes. Well, the that's the problem. Yeah. You know, well, this is something that people really don't understand. And social scientists don't understand it well either, although we should. Like there's two things that we're not trained well, I think, in social scientists. One is consideration of the tails, because the tails have disproportionate impact on behavior and on political and economic outcomes. And then the other is the Pareto distribution problem, because most of us are taught that almost everything is normally distributed. Right. And that actually turns out there's a lot of important well, exceptions to that, including creative achievement. It's not normally distributed at all. It's a standard Pareto distribution. Yeah. Relatively small differences at the average level and then walloping differences at the extreme. And then it's the differences at the extreme that determine behavior. So for example, you know, there's good e evidence that the difference between men and women with regards to interest in people versus things is about one standard deviation, which is the largest psychometric difference between the genders that's been reported as far as I know. And so then you think, well, okay, it still means that men and women overlap to a large degree. But if you look at what determines someone's decision, for example, to go into a field like engineering, you probably have to be, I wouldn't think, what percentage of the population are engineers? I bet it's no more than 2%. Eh? Yeah, I would say, yeah, two to five. Yeah. 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 So, okay. So let's say one in 50, maybe it's yeah. one in 25, but whatever, it's yeah. something like that, 5% of the population. So let's say to be an engineer, well, you have to have a high IQ and you have to be conscientious, but then you have to be interested in things. But you don't have to be just a little bit interested in things. You have to be really interested in things. And even if the average difference between men and women is only one standard deviation, which is still comparatively large, that could mean that virtually everybody who's really interested in things ends up being male. And that's exactly what you see. You see about a 15 to 1 preponderance of male engineers versus female engineers. And 
you know, you might say, well, that's sociocultural and, yeah. and can be ameliorated, but the evidence doesn't support that at all because those differences maximize in the Scandinavian countries. Do you mind if I halt you there? Because you think really interesting. Okay. And by the way, I want to thank you for, I've watched like a hundred of your videos to prepare for this interview. So like, even if I don't always agree with you, I, it helps clarify what in the hell I actually believe. So thank yeah. you for being so authentic in your opinions. I totally believe in quality of opportunity, right? And yeah. I, it seems like what really irks you is when people call for a quality of outcome. That, that's really where you know, where you're right. Infuriate is a better way because okay. I know how dangerous it is. It's unbelievably yes. dangerous. People have no idea what they're yeah. messing with when they mess with equality of outcome. Well, and then to have a nuanced discussion about it, let's say, because that's what we should do is like, okay, the data indicate more and more strongly that there are significant differences between men and women and a variety of dimensions. And more importantly, that those differences expand as cultures become more egalitarian. Okay, so then that opens up an avenue of political questions. It's like the first political question would be, the first observation should be, we better accept that as fact, because it actually seems to be grounded in very serious science. And the scientists who discovered this were biased in the opposite direction. It wasn't what they were happy to find. No one expected it. Okay, but let's take it at face value just for the sake of argument and say, all right, now this opens up a minefield of political questions. And the first is, so for example, let me take a pro-diversity stance just for a minute, even though it hurts my heart to do so. So it looks like if we allowed naturalistic sorting to take place merely as a consequence of people's express choices, that all of the elementary school teachers would end up being women. A lot. Yeah, well, it's yeah. So, so it's going to be there. And it already is the a vast majority of them. But if the sorting continues unabated, that's likely to increase that increasingly it is what it is. But we don't know what to do about that from a sociopolitical perspective. Now, you know, hypothetically, we could enforce equity of outcome, equality of outcome, right. Right. but it would be extremely costly. It would require a tyrannical effort on the part of the government. And there would be all sorts of unintended negative consequences. Now, those might be consequences that we're willing to bear, but we don't want to move into this under the presupposition that the differences that we're trying to eradicate are only sociocultural in nature, because clearly they're not. And you'd hope that we would get to the point where we could actually have an intelligent discussion about it. We don't know yeah. what to do about this, say. That's yeah, the yeah. thing. But you now, made a proposal what to do about it in one of your videos that I wanted to talk to you about, because you actually made a, a concrete, I, in one of the videos I watched, you made a very specific argument. You said, I think that we should eliminate poverty, that we should have eliminate unnecessary suffering, you know, give everyone a relative sort of baseline of income. But then after that is the next stage, we should sort of allow the free market to sort of like allow people to then express. So you still stand by that? What you said in that video about their function of the state? Well, I don't know, because it's so complicated. Like, I don't, I certainly don't think that we should rush headlong into the provision of a universal basic income, because the probability that that will have radically unintended consequences is unbelievably high. So I think one of the things it would probably do, especially among unemployed, hopeless people, is increase their access to drugs like Oxycontin and opiates. See, the problem with the left-wing view of improving economic equality is the left-wingers are so obsessed with the economic side of inequality that they don't pay enough attention to the cultural side of inequality. So if you're down at the bottom of the economic pyramid, 
The fact that you don't have enough money is a big problem, but it's only one of many serious problems you have. And I would say an equally serious problem is that you don't have anything productive, engaging, and meaningful to do with your time. And the problem with that is that, you know, I don't know if you know this or not, but it's pretty easy to get rats that are isolated in a cage singly to be addicted to cocaine. Mm, yeah. You can do it very rapidly, but it's almost impossible to get rats in a naturalistic environment addicted to cocaine. That's really interesting. It is. Yeah. yeah. Well, there, mm. was, there, there were ethologists slash behaviorists that studied rats in their natural environment, and they're quite a bit different than the genetically modified three-quarter body weight starved single yeah. lab rat existing alone in a cage. Rats are social creatures, you know. Like so you Cubans, think, well, yeah. Yeah, well, if you were sitting alone in prison yeah. and somebody offered you endless access to cocaine, it's like the probability that you'd take it is extremely high. But if you have something better to do, then it's low. The problem we're going to have to deal with is more like the provision of meaningful activity to people who are being displaced by large-scale socioeconomic transformations. And that's not a matter of merely redistributing income. Do you know the video I'm talking about where you talk about the function of the state? Yeah, I think I, yeah. I think I was at a political convention in Canada about five years ago. You know, I've done work on what are called like I've done work on giftedness. I've done work on kids with learning disabilities. Trying to the equality of opportunity is what I'm fighting yeah. for. That's what yeah, I'm fighting. Yeah. And in terms of aligning it with the science as well, you know, like it's a beautiful thing for me when they're not opposed to when there's the truth and the helping someone are you know the same thing. You know, that's a beautiful yeah. thing, right? Yeah. So this is an interesting question: is like what could the function of the state optimally be to help to make sure that there's a quality of individual expression. I guess that's what we're talking about here. Well, that's written, yeah. that is a fundamental question. I mean, million dollar um, question. Yeah. One of, yeah, well, one of the things a state does quite effectively is invest in universally accessible infrastructure. So everybody benefits from safe, clean streets, right? Any, everybody benefits from a, an totally. active cultural milieu, like a city like Montreal is a really good example that is extraordinarily culturally active. There's festivals going on there all the time, and a lot of them are totally. outside. A lot of them for, are free. Everyone benefits from that. Education is a good, hypothetically, a good place for the state to invest with regards to equality of opportunity, although it disproportionately benefits people who are on the upper end of the cognitive distribution. It's hard to escape from that, eh? So that's a whole back, other topic. Oh yeah, that's yeah. for sure. Back to the back to the intrinsic difference issue is like we don't really know what the political impact is of the fact that men and women seem highly likely to sort themselves out into different occupations if we just allow them free choice. Because no one has thought that's no one thought that was what was going to happen. You know, and the bloody Radical leftists are fighting this like mad because they insist that all these differences are sociocultural. But the problem is it, it doesn't look like they are. Like all these politics and fractions, right? Yeah. Individual differences is what, is what fascinates me. People are complex systems. Every one of us is a complex system of lots of personality traits, motivations, etc. And, you know, there are people who score high on compassion, regardless of whether you're male or female. A lot of – I score high on compassion. I heard you say you yeah. score high on compassion in one of your videos, you know, when you went yeah. through the BFAS. So it's not like we're saying like, you know, you have to be female to be compassionate. It's funny with the politically yeah. correct research we did. We did find that a lot of the predictive power, a lot of what was predicting affiliation with politically correct standpoint was trait agreeableness. But being female was an additional predictor. And that was really strange because most of the time, and I'm sure this is the case with the literature that you've investigated as well, most of the time, if you look at 
sex differences in a particular outcome, you can get rid of them by controlling for temperament. But you couldn't. Most of them case. look like we couldn't. Yeah. No, there was an additional effect of there was hey. an additional effect sex. Yeah. Did you look at the BFAS? Did you look at politeness versus compassion? Yes, we did, but I can't. It's been a while since I reviewed the paper, and I can't bring it to mind. Okay. No. no I think it was driven mostly by compassion, if I remember okay. correctly. Yeah. And it makes sense, you know, because I think that what's happening on the end of the spectrum, let's say where political views are driven by compassion, is if compassion is primarily a dimension that's there to facilitate intense relationships between individuals and their dependents, which kind of looks to me like what compassion does, is that so, you know, you have compassion for an infant or you have compassion for yeah. someone who's elderly and unwell. If you're a very compassionate person, it's, it's very easy to take the side of the downtrodden and to look for a perpetrator or cause. And lots of time that's extremely useful, right? If you're taking care of an infant and the infant is in distress, the first thing you should be doing is scanning the environment for the cause and, and eliminating it. One unanswered question is, well, what happens when you scale up that personality attribute and it starts to operate politically? See, here's, some, here's a thought for you. Tell me what you think about this. Yeah. I think that we have two traits that orient us in the social world. I think agreeableness orients us in small groups and conscientiousness orients us in large impersonal groups. And that the switch point, wow. the point where you transition from an agreeable viewpoint to a conscientious viewpoint is, is indeterminate. Wait, is there a sex difference on conscientiousness? Are males higher in yeah, conscientiousness? Yeah, there's a bit. No, women are a little more orderly. Okay. And men are a little more industrious. 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 Well, yeah, I was going to ask industrious in particular because Roy Baumeister made a similar – you could link that to Roy Baumeister's argument in, in What Are Men Good For? I think that's the title of the book. He argues that that's the major sex difference, that it's not that like men or women are better than each other. It's that like there have been different motivations in terms of how we want to help people. And a lot of men yeah. have tended throughout the course of history to wanting to help, you know, like uh, huge social networks, have huge social networks. And I wonder if that's a difference in exactly what you're saying between. Well, I think it might be. I, th I think yeah. it might be. Well, look, human beings are strange. First of all, there's no humans animal model for conscientiousness. Yeah. Oh, is that right? Okay. Is that oh, right? I've never seen one. Oh, that's so interesting. You know, it's funny. I was chatting with Colin the other day. He said that um, they just found a correlation between the salience network and uh, conscientiousness. And that's not really well evolved. In in other animals. That's, that's just interesting. Well, really interesting. Yeah. So look, if you think about it this way, if you think that, imagine that there's a human niche that distinguishes us from animals. And I mean, obviously there is, but I mean that one of the distinguishing elements is that we can produce groups whose size exceeds that of our primate cognitive capacity. Mm. So, you know, I think it's Dunbar's work indicates that with human beings, our tribes tend to fractionate when they exceed about a group of about 200. But obviously, we can produce groups that are much, much larger than that, that are functional. But what that means is that those groups have to operate on principles that are outside of the networks that other primates would use to organize themselves socially. And I mm. think that's where conscientiousness kicks in. Well, and if you look at what predicts performance in bureaucracies, it's conscientiousness. It's not agreeableness. In fact, agreeableness is slightly correlated negatively with managerial performance. And so I think once a group exceeds the size where it's familiar, then you have to use a different ethical system to cope with it. And that's conscientiousness. And I think one of the problems with what's happening to us politically right now is that we're trying to implement agreeableness as a political trait. And I don't think it functions well in large groups. 
I hear that argument. I think sometimes some of the things that you are perceiving as relevant to the agreeableness to me might be actually something different. And let me elaborate what I mean. So I've done some research lately. I realized that there's no scale of pathological altruism. It's a construct that Barbara Oakley has written about, but I wanted to do systematic research on this. And I, I think this is relevant to this conversation. Yeah, um, definitely. And so I constructed a reliable and valid scale of pathological altruism, and it is negatively correlated with agreeableness and compassion. We're not talking about it's in that domain. What did you find were the defining characteristics of pathological altruism? Okay, so we looked at grandiose narcissism versus vulnerable narcissism. I am so fascinated with that distinction. I don't think vulnerable narcissism has got as much attention in the literature. We found about 0.6, 0.7 correlation between pathological altruism and vulnerable narcissism. Okay, and elaborate. Is, yeah. Okay, vulnerable narcissism is this, they call it, psychoanalysts call it closet narcissism, where it's like you have these grandiose fantasies inside and you have entitlement, so you score score sky high on entitlement. However, you don't present yourself that way. You present yourself as really vulnerable. We find that the grandiose narcissist and vulnerable narcissist, they score just as high on the grandiose fantasies questionnaire and entitlement subscale. Oh, yeah. Oh, but what yeah. differentiates yeah. them is trait neuroticism. That's the thing that yeah. differentiates them. So whereas grandiose narcissism is correlated with much lower neuroticism, vulnerable narcissism is almost perfectly correlated with high neuroticism. Almost perfectly correlated. Oh, How yeah. correlated? One of my collaborators who on that paper, he wrote another paper with the title, Vulnerable Narcissism is Mostly Just Neuroticism. We're talking about if you do a structural model, we're talking literally almost perfectly correlated. The only thing that additional variance that's explained is some antagonism. Like I said, entitlement, for instance. It's so it's not, a subset yeah. of highly neurotic people who also have developed a sense of entitlement. Entitlement and a sort of interpersonal antagonism towards others. So we're not talking about compassion. Oh, yeah, that's a man. You, you guys are really onto something there. So, oh, great, great. Yeah, yeah, I really think so. I mean, the question is whether or not you're f just fleshing out neuroticism with those sorts of correlations or whether you've yeah. got a subset of people in there who have taken neuroticism to the next step. I don't think it's synonymous with neuroticism because okay. most people who present themselves with high neuroticism to the therapist, as you know, they are depressed. Not like they have these grandiose fantasies and, yeah. and entitlement. Early developmental experience seems to be a really interesting moderator we found. We found okay. that those who were told that they're worthless in childhood or that were actually in some sense did experience some sort of trauma in their childhood. That seems to actually correlate with later on. And I think that, you mm -hmm. know, from a clinician perspective, you know, we want to help these individuals integrate healthily in a society. And I think maybe that's where your responsibility argument comes into play. Well, the Jungian idea behind that was that those grandiose fantasies were compensations, right? And that within them, there is the seeds in some sense of a developmental pathway. So if someone is oppressed and put down continually and they develop compensatory fantasies, the yeah. fantasies are, you can think about them as the manifestation of that imagination network trying wow. to lay out an alternative mode of being. But then those fantasies have to be subject to critical analysis so they don't become dwelling places or reasons for bitterness in relationship to the world. We just came full circle in the sense that in a way it's like the start of this discussion, you know, like this interplay, dynamic interplay between imagination and then rationality. And this, yeah. Well, yeah, the right? problem with those fantasies, well, the problem with those fantasies is that they're not decomposed. Yeah. So like if you're dealing with someone that's that, someone clinically and they have these fantasies, then you might think about them as a starting place for how they could mod modify their life. So the fantasy is saying, you know, the fantasy is serving as a counterpart to the painful reality. The painful reality is downtrodden neuroticism. 
the fantasy is as far on the other end of the scale as like it balances the pathology by putting something on the other end of the scale that's equally far away. Then you have to help the person take a critical look at the fantasy and start to make it a reality instead of just a fantasy and to lay out a strategic plan for doing that. Exactly. Exactly. You know, I mean, look, we, we're all human. Like I personally went through a stage, I think when I was in my early twenties, I was so insecure. Like I wanted to be like academia. I wanted to like, that was my way of proving that I was smart and that wasn't healthy, you know? And like, I get it, but I also get, you know, the value of when I really decided to take some of these grandiose fantasies I had yeah. of like being academia and I say, well, look, you know, I'm going to just take it out of my head and I'm going to like work really freaking hard. I mean, I was in special education as a kid because I had an auditory disability yeah. when I was really young. At one point, I just took 100% responsibility for that situation. Okay. So you took the right route out of that. The, yeah. Those fantasies, like you can think of those fantasies as part of the attempt by the the mechanism that generates creativity to yeah. lay out a pathway forward. The problem is, is when people dwell in the fantasies and dwell yeah. on the fantasies instead of instead of breaking them down into a strategic plan and realizing them, which is what a good therapist should help someone with. Absolutely. I'm sure you've done that in your practice. You were in practice over 20 years or something like that? Yeah. 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 I'm sure it's Yeah, well, that's also what happens with our future authoring program, because what we really ask people to do in the future authoring program is to generate a compensatory fantasy. Right. You know, we say, well, lay out how your life could be improved, then imagine what your life would be like if all those improvements took place. But we don't stop with that. Then we say, okay, now subject that to some critical analysis, decompose it, make it into a strategic plan break it down into things you would do day by day and week by week so they can become realizable in the world. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's so sensible, right? I mean, it's like, by the way, this paper, I, I could send to you, it's actually under review right now. We have a whole section on the clinical complications of these findings. And, you know, we, we talked yeah, about like some of these things. It. Yeah, I'd like I'd to see it. Roy Baumeister wrote a really interesting book on, I think it's the best sort of real honest assessment of evil. Have you read Evil Inside Human Violence and Cruelty? No, I haven't read it yet. No. Now, something he talks in there because he wants to get a full understanding of all the causal forces of what we call evil. And something in there he talks about is he makes it so clear that responsibility is not the same as culpability. Like responsibility is not the same thing as blame. Well, look at the situation you just described. Like, let's say that you are high in neuroticism and you were subject to bullying of a real sort and trauma when you were a kid. Well, it's not like you're culpable for that. Correct. But but you need to take responsibility for it because – well, who else is going to? Right. But, you know, if, as a scientist, if we want to truly, uh, truly understand a phenomenon, we need to understand all of the causal factors. And we need to do that as objectively as possible. That's not saying that we're not allowed to have compassion. Like, I have immense compassion. I want to make the world a better place. I know you want to make the world a better place as well. But I think I can, like, kind of separate those things at different times and then try to kind of thoughtfully think through how we can integrate this. Yeah. I'd like to see the paper. I'm very interested in what you're doing. I'd like to see both of them, the one on the default network and also the one on on vulnerable narcissism. I really do think that's associated with the sorts of things that I've been talking about in relationship to the school shooters, for example, because they develop grandiose compensatory fantasies and then act them out in the most pathological way. So relevant. Yeah. Good talking with you. Good talking to you. Thanks for your time. Yeah. And then let me know when this goes up and I'll tweet it and all of that. Sounds good. Have a good day. Okay. Okay. See ya. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Psychology Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, 
I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com. That's thepsychologypodcast.com. Also, please add a rating and review of The Psychology Podcast on iTunes. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the podcast, and tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's better H E L P dot com. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there.